you got a Bible, open to Romans chapter 12, where we're going to be for a little while this morning. Romans chapter 12. So I grew up in an era of the original Nintendo entertainment system, right? That little gray box that had a controller that had two buttons and an arrow pad, right? That was video games in my generation, okay? And so, but I remember on that little gray console, they had two buttons on that. They had a power button and a reset button. You could turn the power on. And the thing would power up whatever game cartridge you had put in there. Um, you know, you couldn't buy things online at that point. It had to actually stick something into the console. So you stuck the cartridge into the console and you powered it up. Well, no matter where you were in the game, if you didn't really like how things were going, you could always hit the reset button and go all the way back to the beginning. It would reboot you and restart you where you would, where you would come from. And so when you think about hitting the restart button on any, uh, whether it's the Nintendo Entertainment System or any um, piece of technology, it ultimately reboots and resets you back to where you started from. And we've just kind of come out of a series of sermons through the book of James together as a church over the course of the last four months. And so I thought over the course of the next several weeks, it would be helpful for us to hit the reset button as a church and go back to and be reminded of why we exist and what we're trying to accomplish and so that's what we're going to do over the course of the next several weeks is kind of hit the reset button and go back to what is it that God has given for his church to do and how is it that we are going to try and move toward that mission that God has given us. From the time that I arrived here a year ago, our mission has been consistent. It has been that we exist to share the gospel and to shape disciples and to send missionaries into our neighborhoods and around the globe. And that we didn't make that up. We didn't have a creative meeting where we all sat around at a, a, a conference table, you know, with peanut M&Ms and water bottles and, and, and had this conference setting to be with all the creative juices flowing to try and think about what our mission would be because Jesus gives the mission to every church that has ever existed, does exist now, and will ever exist in the future. And in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, when he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you, and I will be with you. That is the mission for every church that has ever existed, does now currently exist in this day and age, and will ever exist at some point in the future. Jesus' mission is to be a disciple-making body of believers. And so we want to share the gospel with people who do not yet know Jesus, that they might come into a relationship with him. And then those who come into a relationship with him, by his grace, we want to shape their character and convictions in such a way that their life begins to be molded after his image and after his likeness. And then we want to take those folks who are being shaped into his image and likeness and send them out into neighborhoods around us, neighborhoods that you live in, neighborhoods that I live in, with the truth of the gospel that is transformed and is reorienting their lives. That's our mission, share, shape, and send. But there are churches, any church that Jesus is indeed pleased with is a church that's doing those things, is making disciples, is, is, has that at the forefront of their minds in everything that they are doing and everywhere that they are going. But listen, just because that's the mission that every church should have, listen, every church that has ever existed, does now exist, or will exist, might go about pursuing that mission a little bit differently, and that's what they would call their vision. How is it? What steps are we going to take to pursue this? 
And here at Sabine Creek Fellowship, we've talked about if you come through our membership process, you look at our membership covenant, we talk about, or you go onto our website and you see our life group page there where we talk about the smaller communities that meet in homes throughout our area, in neighborhoods. We talk about wanting to raise up what we would call families of missionary servants. That's what we want to see created in these homes as groups meet across our, our cities and counties. We want to see families and missionary servants raised up in those smaller contexts. Families, because they're birthed, they're given birth by the gospel proclamation. So people come to faith in Jesus because the gospel sets roots in their hearts and God is gracious to save so they're birthed by, born again through gospel proclamation, but that's also what binds us together. So we're birthed through gospel proclamation and bound together by gospel proclamation. So we're a family of brothers and sisters who have been born of God because God has been gracious to save. So we're families of missionary ser servants, right? Families and missionary servants, that's what we're trying to see created. Next week, we're going to look at the missionary piece. This week, we want to take a look at the servant piece of that statement. Because one of the evidences and marks of a church that is a disciple-making church, that's sharing the gospel and shaping disciples and sending missionaries, one of the evidences of a life that's been reoriented around who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ is the fact that there are folks who begin to step up into areas of service. They become servants. They're born by the gospel. They're bound together by the gospel. Brothers and sisters who are laying their lives down sacrificially for each other and for those who have not yet been born again, who have not yet come to faith. They're giving themselves away. They're giving themselves to and they're serving. It's one of the evidences or marks of a people whose life has been shaped by the gospel that they are servants. They are servants. And in the text that we're going to be in this morning, in Romans chapter 12, Paul gives us, he gives us what I think we might call both the, the, the trajectory or the focus of where that service is moving towards. And he also tells us the manner in which we should be serving as those whose lives have been shaped by the gospel. But he also tells us where we're going to get the fuel to do it with. Right? So those three things. Where, what's the focus of our service? What's the manner in which we are to serve? And what's the fuel that's going to ignite the flame to actually do it? So first things first, let's read the text together in Romans chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. It's, Paul writes these words. He says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now, the first part of verse 12, he says, rejoice in hope. And if we're going to become a family of servants who is born by and bound together by the gospel that has this mark of service in our lives, we've got to get crystal clear, crystal clear on the focus of that service, the trajectory of that service, who it is that we are serving. And Paul unequivocally and unashamedly says in Romans 12, 11, that we should serve Jesus. That all of our service is oriented to him and for him and about him. That we are serving 
Jesus. He's writing to the church at Rome, this collection of covenant-bound believers who's been born by the gospel and bound together by the gospel. And he commands them to serve the Lord. Now listen, if you go read the rest of Paul's letters, even the rest of Romans, you're going to see him refer on multiple occasions to Jesus Christ the Lord. For instance, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the apostle Paul writes, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. You go to Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. And Paul draws an equal sign in each of those instances between Jesus and Lord. And so it is not a far stretch for when Paul says, serve the Lord, that he's actually just saying, serve Jesus. Serve Jesus. Now, the best way that I can think of to kind of help us get our minds around what it looks like to serve Jesus is potentially to say what it looks like not to serve him because there's, everyone is serving something, aren't we? We're all serving something or someone. And so what Paul is saying is this. He's saying serve Jesus and not your belly, okay? Not your appetites. You look out elsewhere in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Then he says in verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, speaking of Jesus, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul says, you can either serve Jesus in Romans chapter 16, you can serve Jesus or you can serve your belly. You can serve Jesus or you can serve your appetites. You can serve Jesus or you can serve your desires. In other words, your service can be oriented to and focused upon Jesus Christ the Lord or it can be focused upon Shannon. And you can fill in your name in that blank, by the way. Your own appetites what's comfortable for you, what's convenient for you, what's rewarding and fulfilling for you. Not only does Paul say you can serve Jesus or you can serve your belly, but you can serve Jesus. He's saying serve Jesus and not people. Now listen, let me be very clear. There is a sense in which we are called and commanded to serve people as Christians. Absolutely. Paul says it in Galatians 5.13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So Paul says in Galatians, serve each other. Sacrifice for each other. Give yourself away to each other. Even when it's not convenient. Even when it's really hard. Even when it makes you, pushes you beyond the bounds of your comfort. Serve one another. But there is absolutely a way that we could go about serving one another that is dead wrong according to the apostle as well. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 6 to 7, he says that we are to serve not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Paul says in Galatians 5, serve one another out of love. Ephesians 6, don't serve to be seen by other people. You don't serve others so that you can get on their good side and establish some goodwill with them. You can deposit some credits into their, your account with them so that maybe one day they would return the favor because they saw all these good things that you did for them. He says, don't serve as people pleasers, but serve one another. So you're serving Jesus. Ultimately, all of your service is aiming at him, not at the people who are around you. But then thirdly, Paul says, serve Jesus and not the law. 
not the law. Listen to what he says in Romans 7, 6. He says, but now we were released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve, how? In a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul says you're not serving because somebody's placed this burden on your shoulders that's crushing you to the ground. So you think, if I can just do enough, if I can just, if I, if I, if I, if I can just do enough good stuff for other people and serve other people. Right? Because the written code is laying on top of me. The law is laying on top of me. It's telling me I have to do these things. Paul says you're not serving the law any longer if you're a Christian. You've been set free from its, it, from, from its condemning demands. So you're not serving your belly, your appetites, your own desires. You're doing things that are stretching you beyond your comfort zone. You're doing things that are, that are not convenient. They're not just casual for you any longer. So you're not serving your belly or your appetites, and you're not serving people to please them, but you're serving Jesus. Even in your service to people, you're ultimately serving Jesus. And you're not serving the law, trying to live up to, like climb the steps up to get up to God, but because he's come down to you, therefore you're giving your life away to other people. And you do this, this service to Jesus takes place both inside and outside the church. Inside and outside. Because Jesus has a bride, and he also has enemies. Jesus has a bride. And I, I can remember on our wedding day, Karen and I, all, a little over 14 years ago now, I think. Right? A little over 14 years ago now, on our wedding day, right, I remember being like quarantined from where she was. Okay? I couldn't see her before she, the doors opened in the back of the church, and she walks down the aisle glowing and radiant. But you know what? She had had a team of people who were in that room with her, all of her attendants and bridesmaids, making sure her veil was positioned just right, making sure that her makeup was on just so, making sure she had her jewelry on, right, before she left, making sure whatever she needed, they were serving her and serving her and serving her to make her ready for that time in which she would walk down the aisle and be received by this joke of a husband, <laughs> Right? And Jesus has a bride, and it's called his church. It's called his church. And a part of what we are to do is we wait for his return, for those doors to open, and for us to be united with him forever is to be a part of making her ready for his return. So we serve in the church, but we, he also has enemies. He has enemies. Those who want nothing to do with Jesus. They want nothing to do with his people. And what does Jesus say we are to do in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition, in the face of potential danger and harm? He says, I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's a way that you serve them. You're serving inside the church. You're serving outside the church. And all of your service is ultimately aiming and focused on Jesus. But Paul not only tells us the focus, but he also tells us the manner in which we are to do this. And Paul says in this small, short text, he says, how should we serve Jesus? Serve him both with pragmatism and passion. Both with pragmatism and passion. And what does that word pragmatism mean? It means basically practical results, that you're doing stuff. And passion means you're doing stuff passionately with feeling behind it, with emotion in it, 
Listen to what he says in the text. In verse 11, he says the same thing basically in two ways. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Now listen, I've never heard anyone use the adjective or the adverb slothful to describe somebody when they were giving them a compliment, right? That's never a compliment. When you look at somebody and you say, that person's lazy, right? Or you hear a wife talking about how lazy her husband is. Unfortunately, over the years, I've heard that, okay? How lazy their spouse is. That's never a compliment, is it? I don't think so, right? Or you say, that new employee, a guy we just brought on last week, he's in that new role that we were creating. He's just lazy. He's a sloth. That usually means he's not going to be around for very long. Or you hear somebody talking about a student who is slothful. They might use that terminology. It means they probably do just enough to get by, to squeak by in their classwork. They're lazy. It's never a compliment, but it's always a critique. And Paul says, do not be slothful. Do not be lazy in zeal, in doing things. That word zeal from the Greek literally means this. It literally means having an earnestness or diligence in accomplishing, promoting, or striving after something. So you're engaged in doing something. Your hands are dirty up to your elbows because you're working. You're working with pragmatism. You're seeking results. You're wanting to be efficient. You're wanting to utilize your time well so that you can leverage it for the sake of Jesus as you serve him. Paul says, don't be slothful. There's a pragmatism. There's an efficiency that's connected to what Paul says here, that you're actually up to your elbows. You're serving. You're doing work doing lots of work instead of shrinking back you're stepping in instead of turning away you're turning toward the needs that exist around you but notice what else he says not only should we serve with pragmatism but also with passion also in verse 11 he says not only should we not be slothful in zeal but we should be fervent in spirit and that word literally means to boil like that word fervent literally means to boil and you go, what does it mean to boil in spirit? I'm glad you asked, right? All you got to do is ask a Cajun. Somebody's got a little bit of Tabasco and Tony Sacheries running in their blood. All you got to do is come and say, hey, what does it mean to boil? Listen, every year, every spring, my family would bust out the propane burner down in South Louisiana. And they would have a big aluminum pot and big wash basins and then we'd go down to the rice fields and we'd pick up bags full of these little bugs that crawl around with pinchers. They're called crawfish. And we would throw a bunch of salt into the wash basins and throw the crawfish into the wash basin to purge them. Right? So they get rid of all that stuff inside them that you don't necessarily want to eat after you cook them. And then we would take this big pot and the propane burner and we would fire that thing up and the water would begin to heat and we would dump all kinds of seasonings into that water. And as the water heated and it began to boil, you could see the surface of that water begin to roll. Okay, you ever seen a big pot of water boiling? The surface is just rolling. It's just frothing around. You dump all kinds of seasonings in there. And you take these co the corn and the potatoes and the onions and you dump those into that frothing, boiling water. And then you take these poor, innocent little crawfish. And you open up the bag and you dump them in and they come they go in dark red and they come out bright red and they taste really good going down 
But when you watch that pot of water boiling, right, before the water begins to boil, it's very placid and calm on top. And you might think of things like lethargy or laziness or half-heartedness. But when that water begins to boil, because that heat builds down at the bottom and is transferred through the pot and through the water at every level, it begins to roll on top. And as it begins to roll on top, the last thing in your mind that you're thinking is half-heartedness or complacency are comfortable. I guarantee those crawfish don't find it comfortable whenever they get thrown into that water. It's the last thing on your mind. And when Paul says that your spirits should be boiling, he's saying there should be this flame that's burning inside of you so that there's not this commonplace half-hearted, yeah, I'll kind of show up every once in a while and help out with a few things, whether it's outside the church or inside the church, but there should be a flame that's burning inside of you that's causing your spirit to boil and roll, and there is this passion that exists for the things that you're putting your hands to. Yes, you want to be efficient. Yes, you want to be pragmatic. Yes, you want to be practical. Yes, you want to see things get accomplished. Yes, you got your hands up to your elbows, getting work done, but, the, but what's fueling that is this passion that's burning deep within your soul as your spirit's boiling and rolling, and there's a fervency and a frothiness about your service. Paul says you serve both with pragmatism and passion. You don't just aim to be efficient and get a lot of things done, but you also need to be inflamed with a passion. And he's saying to those of us who perhaps tend more toward the emotional side, don't just be inflamed to talk about doing a whole lot of stuff, but actually be pragmatic and get your hands involved and do something. It's both and and not either or. Some of us are more pragmatic than we are passionate. Some of us are more passionate than we are pragmatic. And Paul says, you've got to hold both of those two things together so that you're actually doing something, but you're doing something with a heart that's inflamed and enraged and rolling and frothy with passion. Jonathan Edwards, in his early 20s, he wrote out a list of resolutions that he was going to live his life by. And in resolution number six, I think he captures the essence of Paul's words in Romans 12, 11, when he writes, resolved to live with all my might while I live. To live with all my might while I live. So he says, yes, I'm gonna live, I'm gonna do stuff, but I'm gonna do stuff not half-heartedly and not commonplace, but I'm gonna live with all my might and all the strength and all the energy that I can muster by God's grace to give myself to the work that I'm doing. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that with all my might part? How are you doing with the I will live part? How are you doing with the efficiency in your hands, dirty up to your elbows, getting involved in the work? How are you doing with the frothiness of the heart and the passion that is pouring and boiling over into the life, which is extending the hands into the work to get them dirty? How are you doing with that? Because what Paul says here. Listen, make no mistake. Make no mistake. God desires to have your hands. He does. He's given you gifts and abilities, and whether it's in this local church or another local church, he's given you things to do. 
contributions to make. He's equipped you for service, either here or somewhere else. Make no mistake, he wants your hands, but what this text tells us is God not only wants your hands, he wants your heart. He wants you to be fully engaged in what you're doing. He wants there to be a passion boiling over in your soul so that whenever you put your hands down into the water to get them wet and muddy, man, there's a boiling that's taking place because it's flowing out from your heart. He doesn't just want your hands, he wants your heart. And I will say this, that if we're gonna be a people whose lives are shaped by the gospel, if we're gonna be a people whose lives who are truly families of servants, whose lives are shaped by the gospel, because we've been born again by the message of the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. We've been bound together by that same message. If we're going to be a gospel people, then there's got to be people who look at us and say, why in the world are they so passionate about what they're engaged in doing? And I went to church all my life, and I never saw that kind of passion. I never saw that kind of energy. I never saw that kind of fervency boiling over out of people's hearts. What in the world is going on? If we're going to be gospel people, then there's going to have to be people who demand gospel evidences for what they see in our lives. I can't understand why they would give so much time and devote so much energy to something outside of what they're being paid to do. It doesn't make any sense to me. Oh, it does if you understand the fact that you've been born and bound by the gospel. See, my, the question that I have is this for us, is where are the people in the local church, not just this local church, but every local church, where are the people in the local church who have vocational levels of commitment in their volunteer service? Who have, man, I, I show up nine to five every day at my office, and if there's, there's expectations of things that I need to get done. And if I fail, if I falter, if I pull back, there are things in our workplace that aren't going to get done and we're not going to get paid. My question is, is, where are the people, the men and the women, who have the same kind of vocational commitment to their volunteer service inside and outside of the church because they're serving Jesus with a passion that's boiling over from their hearts? Where are the men and women with hobby-like passion? Listen, you can have vocational commitment, but where's that hobby-like passion? I read some of our Facebook, Facebook posts, and I see those Instagram things and how passionate we are about our hobbies and about my running and fishing and working out and cooking and crafting and quilting and home improvement projects and all this passion that's boiling over because of these hobbies that we have that we're giving ourselves to but where are the men and women in the local church who have been born and bound by the gospel whose hearts are overflowing with a hobby-like passion for what God has given them to do in his church and in his world where are the men and women with parent-like dedication so that whenever they see a need, they step into it. Listen, I got two kids, seven and four, and we're out of the diaper stage. Thank you, Jesus. We're out of the diaper stage. But I can remember the diaper stage very clearly, right? 
And whenever, if you've got a young child in your home who's still in that diaper stage and you see them walking around your home and they're riding low, right? Low and dirty, okay? You don't just let them ride low and dirty for days on end. You just don't do that. Why? So you see a need and a parent-like dedication steps into that need. They put the kid up on the changing table. They take off that diaper with a gas mask on and turn their head, right, and grab the wipes and wipe up all that stuff and stick it in the, you got to have a diaper genie, right? You stick it in the diaper genie. Why? Because you're dedicated to the welfare of your child. So you serve them. Where are the men and women with that parent-like dedication to Jesus' church? into his world so that in their service they're serving Jesus and they see needs that aren't going to be convenient they're not going to smell really good it's, going to, it's not going to be com- comfortable for them to step in and, and meet those needs but they go you know what I'm dedicated to Jesus I'm dedicated to his people and I'm dedicated to his world and so I step into that with that dedication where are the men and women with a vocational commitment to their volunteer service, with a hobby-cut passion and apparent dedication to the needs that arise among us. God wants your hands, but he also wants your heart. And so where is this passion going to come from? How is it going to boil up over? What's the fuel that's going to feed it? And Paul tells us that too in verse 12. He says, rejoice in hope. This passion, listen to me very clearly, this passion is fueled by a joy that is born out of the hope that what we are doing matters. It matters. Paul says, rejoice in hope. In hope. What is this hope that we are to rejoice in and have joy in? Unequivocally in the scriptures, when the Bible talks about hope, particularly in the New Testament, it's talking about the hope of Jesus' second advent, that whenever he returns, things will get better and brighter. They're pretty bad now and pretty dark now, but when he comes back, things will get better and brighter. And so we're looking forward to hope, with a hope that he's coming, he's returning, he's coming to rule and to save, and things are going to get better, and things are going to get brighter. And Paul says you've got to rejoice and find joy in that hope. Because you know that on the, over the horizon, things are going to change. And the sin that you fight against now will be eradicated once and for all. In all of the stuff that you see in the world, Jesus will squash and triumph over as he returns to rule and reign forever and ever and ever. So how does rejoicing in this hope, how how does finding joy in the better and brighter tomorrow when Christ returns, how does it affect our service? And this is how I think it affects our service. If the future will be better and brighter when Jesus comes, then what we do with engaged hands and inflamed hearts in his service today matters for eternity. And matters forever. And Jesus says, 
Or Paul says, I'm sorry, Paul says that what you do when you get your hands dirty because your heart is boiling over, it matters because Jesus is coming back. And because he's coming back, there should be a joy in you that is like the kindling that lights the fire of the flame that causes your spirit to boil because you're saying, yes, it's going to get better. Yes, it's going to get brighter. Yes, he's coming to rule and save. And so what I do today in service of this king who is coming as he establishes the rule of his kingdom, what I do today, it matters. It matters infinitely and eternally. That's how I think these links are connected. And so every Sunday morning when people show up because of the hope they have that Christ is coming and they set out connection cards and all the chair backs and they make coffee and they set up uh, communication offering boxes and they set up tables in the back to greet guests and welcome people. What you do in your service to Jesus today because he's coming back at some point tomorrow Maybe not tomorrow in the calendar days, but you get the picture. Some point in the future, it matters so that we can connect with people and answer questions they have about Jesus. What you do whenever you sit down with kids up in those metal buildings up the hill and you open the Bible and you play games and you coordinate a craft, it matters as you teach kids the story of who Jesus is and what he's done across the pages of Scripture. It matters. Working with our kids matters. Leading life groups where we open up a discussion guide and we talk about what God has said to us as a church. It matters. Opening your home to host those matters. Running sound and slides in the back week in and week out. It matters. Showing up early on mornings when it's raining with an umbrella to greet people in the parking lot. Not because someone asked you to do it, but because there's a passion that's boiling over in your heart. Because Jesus is coming back and you want to see people get connected to him. And so you show up with an umbrella and you walk people from their car to this building. And back, it matters. Connecting people to him matters. Helping to direct people to parking whenever we are meeting up in the youth building, it matters. And we do all this to point people to Jesus, connect them to his church because he's coming to save and rule. And that's our hope. And that's where the joy comes from. And that's what sets this fire aflame in our hearts that causes our spirits to boil and we get our hands dirty, elbows deep in serving Jesus, because it matters. What if we had a family of servants in this church who were born of and bound together by the gospel? And they knew that their work mattered. Then we wouldn't have to beg and bribe people to show up once a month and serve our kids. we had a family of servants, we wouldn't have to make phone call after phone call after phone call after phone call after phone call trying to get just one person to volunteer for VBS. If we had a family of servants, we wouldn't have to go down to the bottoms and bring the cows up to man bounce houses at 4th of July. If we had a family of servants, we wouldn't have to wonder whether or not people were going to show up to fulfill the duties that they had signed up for. And outside of emergencies, on Sunday mornings, we wouldn't get phone calls or no-shows. If we had a family of servants, 
would have this piranha-like atmosphere so that as soon, listen, as soon as a need hit the water, it's like, right, it's boiling because people just can't wait to bite off a piece of that and give themselves to it. This piranha-like atmosphere, if we had a family of servants, they would have highly sensitive antennas to pick up on needs in the life of the church community and step into those to do something about them as opposed to just talking about them. If we had a family of servants, everyone would be pulling their weight. And listen, in the size of the church we are right now, everyone needs to have a hand on that rope and pulling it forward. Or hands on those bol- that boulder and pushing it up the hill. Everyone. And it may not be the area that you go, well, that's where I would be ideally suited to serve. It may be for a season that you have to serve outside that ideally suited position where you're not comfortable and where you make a sacrifice. If we had a family of servants, I long to see that. Our elders long to see that. Our staff Longs to see that. And I believe based upon what God has revealed in the scriptures, he longs to see that. Now some of you here this morning, I'll close with this, and you go, man, I'm not even a Christian. You want me to serve Jesus? I'm not even a Christian. Let me just say this. If that's you this morning, I want you to understand that the only thing that will move your heart to begin to serve with a passion that boils over out of a hope of what is to come, if you're not a Christian, what you need to see more than anything this morning, what you need to understand more than anything this morning is how he has served you. In Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 45, Mark writes these words. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to understand and see that what God has done in Christ is that he has come not so that you would serve him, but he's come to serve you in Jesus, to give his life for you. And when you see him giving his life for you and laying everything that he has down to the very last drop of his blood and breath that he would breathe, to give his life as a ransom for you so that he might bring you to God. That's, the, that's what you need to see this morning. And that's the only thing that will move your heart toward the trajectory of having a hope for what is to come is to trust what Jesus has done. He's given himself for you. Would you give yourself to him? I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing together one final song this morning. The band's going to come and lead us. I'm going to be in the back if you have any questions after the service about Jesus, how he served you and given his life as a ransom, or about how to get connected and serve here locally with us as, we be a part, as you would be a part of sharing, shaping, and sending in, one of the, in our family of missionary servants. Let's pray together. Father, we come today. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for the hope that, that grace affords us that you've been kind to us, you've been loving to us, you've been generous to us when we did not deserve it and could not earn it. And because of that, 
God, I pray that there would be folks in this room this morning who do not know you, that would come to know you because they would see that you gave your life for them before you ever asked them to give their lives to you. But God, when they see that you gave your son as a sacrifice, as a ransom for their sin, that caused separation between them and you, God, I pray that you would break down their defenses and chip away at their walls and the hardness of their heart. And the same thing that I prayed for our students as they go off to camp this summer, the next week, God, that you would melt hearts and enlighten minds and open eyes and ears. That they would see Jesus crucified, buried, and resurrected for them. And for those who do know you, God, I pray that this church would be stamped with the indelible impression of the likeness of Jesus who has given himself to serve us. And out of a great hope that he's coming back one day that we would give ourselves to serving him with hearts that are boiling over with joy. I pray this in Jesus' name.